Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. So I'm here, of course, with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Just just living the dream day by day. Ha- happy to be back on and t- talking some college hoops and draft prep with you. Living the dream day by day sounds like immense <laughs> pain. I just I got to get that out there before we continue on with this. Nah, I, I, every day is a blessing. Each one better than the, the last. Well, let's now move from that uplifting note to talking about one of the more fun prospects to watch in this class. And certainly if you read about how he donated a significant amount of his name and image licensing rights money to his own foundation, certainly a good human being as well. But we're here to talk about the basketball side of things with Ty Ty Washington. So you wrote a piece on Friday for your Friday screener about his pick and roll creation. And I, first of all, love this piece, love reading it. But second of all, I think that this piece does a wonderful job of explaining just how good Ty Ty can be in the pick and roll, because we have seen not as much of Ty Ty in the pick and roll and sort of running the show offensively for Kentucky as we might have expected coming in the year. Certainly as I would have liked, I would have loved to see more of Ty Ty running the pick and roll a lot more early on in the season, but when he has gotten the reps, he's been incredibly impressive in that regard. So talk about what you've seen from Ty Ty in the pick and roll so far this year. It's it's tough because I, I I've struggled to really buy in on Ty Ty. There there's so much of his game that I that I liked, but like the 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 lottery conversation just felt like a stretch for me. And then when I was you know really prepping for that article, just diving back into the subtleties of his game, and he he's he's a tough eval because at least for me because. He's not this overly athletic guy. He's not this flashy ball handler or space creator. He's not this flashy playmaker, but he just the, the the simplicity and the subtlety in which he plays creates so much positive, so many positive things on the court on nearly a possession by possession basis. And I think a lot of that really shines with his pick and roll ball handling and his pick and roll initiation. Currently on the season, he's in the 71st percentile as a pick and roll ball handler, which synergy constitutes as very good. And his passes are in the 90th percentile. And those numbers are kind of feel or or initially felt a little surprising to me because it never feels like he really takes over a game that he's like really dominating out there. But his decision making, his ability to get to a spot and rise up, just deliver a simple pocket pass or find the cutter out of the pick and roll. It's all, you know, I, I keep saying simplistic and, you know, I'm probably going to use that word a few more times. And I don't want that to sound like an insult because it's not at all. It's understanding what the defense is giving him and taking advantage of it. And so often we see from these young ball handlers and these young guards who try to do the flashy thing every play, who try to overcomplicate it and try and make a home run play on every single pass or every single shot. And Ty Ty doesn't do that. He he plays within himself. He does what's best for the offense and he manipulates the defense based on whatever looks they're giving him. Yeah, you and I have talked often on this podcast about sort of the difference between, you know, flashy playmaking Mm -hmm. and just making a good decision and making the right read. And 
there's something sort of foundational about the way that Ty Ty runs the pick and roll in the sense that maybe he's not making the flashiest read, but you have a lot of faith with him with the ball in his hands to make the right decision. And maybe it's not as flashy as some of the crazier passers in this class, or certainly some of the crazier passers that we saw in the last class in terms of just their vision and making those plays that makes your eye pop out of your forehead. But he did have that one game against Georgia where he was just absolutely masterful as a pick and roll creator. But for the most part, it hasn't been that kind of dominant game. It's really just been slow and steady. And that kind of thing, I think, bodes really well for his ability to develop more on the ball in the future, you know, taking more risks and seeing if he can make those more wide open plays. But for him to have the baseline of success that he's had in pick and roll as a creator is really encouraging. Yeah, and you you mentioned the 17 assist game, and, and that one obviously, it leaps off the page in the box score when you're looking at it, because that's an absurd amount of assists. But when you, you know, when you go through that game or the highlights, I I feel like 17 is kind of overstating how complicated his playmaking was, but it's still just a testament to him just seeing the right pass, seeing the right read and executing it, which he pretty much does on a nightly basis, which further frustrates me when we continue to see severe Wheeler out there constantly running point for Kentucky. And, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to attack severe Wheeler here because I, I think he's a solid college point guard, but what Ty Ty can do at the point guard position for that Kentucky team is he he can elevate them to a place that Wheeler can't, and yet we continue to see Ty Ty play a lot in an off-ball role. So hopefully as the season kind of progresses down the line here, hopefully we get to a point where Ty Ty's that main initiator that main point guard the actual point guard for this team because in the nba i think that's really going to be what he has to be and the role that he will play um so i i think from a draft evaluation standpoint and a projection standpoint i i think seeing him really up the volume in that role would just make our lives a lot easier and do and, and likely do wonders for his draft stock so I have had Ty Ty in the lottery throughout this process, so I guess I didn't really have the buy-in element as much mm-hmm. as you did, just because I was kind of bought in from the beginning. But something that you brought up with Severe Wheeler that I think is worth discussing is it's really difficult sometimes to evaluate these Kentucky freshman guards, just because a lot of times they will lose playing time and opportunities to more experienced players and when you have a constant rotation of blue chip players like Kentucky does, then, you know, it kind of makes sense that a Devin Booker or a Shea Gilgis Alexander or now a Ty Ty Washington is sort of put into this smaller role. And I guess the reason why I particularly wanted to bring up the Georgia game is, you know, yes, that is an outlier that jumps out of the box score because it's 17 assists. It was the either tied or breaking the Kentucky record. I think he broke John Wall's Kentucky record. I believe so. in the game. Yeah, but that kind of thing is like, it shows the flashes of what he can do when he has the ball in his hands Mm -hmm. in a larger opportunity at the NBA level. And especially given that there's a history of players in his position at Kentucky being able to show a lot more of their game when they get to the NBA, along with the fact that Ty Ty has a really solid mix of being someone who operates incredibly well in the mid-range, shooting 37% from three on a decently healthy variance of attempts, not, you know, 
super big step backs and Trey Mann self-creation kind of stuff, but just very, very solid to good across the board at a whole bunch of offensive skills. And the pick and roll creation really just helps to sort of bring the rest of that package together even better than it would have been without him being able to show that in admittedly limited opportunities this year at Kentucky. But when he's had those chances, it's looked really good. Yeah. And I, the, what what continuously really stood out to me was his effectiveness at scoring out of the out of the pick and roll, um, and I, I think that's something that's going to be really important to him in the long run, uh, especially in the NBA, because I, I think he is going to need a screen to really create advantages for himself on ball. Because I, I just I don't think he's that elite space creator uh, like Trey Mann, as you mentioned. Um, but when he does come off the screen, he's so effective. And then once he gets downhill, that's when he really becomes difficult to defend because he's really effective around the rim. He has one of the best floaters in the country. He's in the 90th percentile in points per possession on floaters. And then he's also really accurate and crafty with his pocket passes and how he sets up the roller. So the the way that he really tightly dribbles off the screens essentially just completely takes his defender out of the play. Um, and, you know, I, I, I feel like Oscar Shibway needs to get some love here too, because he's a, uh, monster of a man who is a really yes. good screen setter and is a big reason why Ty Ty's pick and roll numbers are so effective, but those guys exist in the NBA as well. So then once he really tightly dribbles off that screen, he's creating a two V one opportunity pretty much any time he wants. And then he just reads whatever the drop defender is doing. If they stay with the roller, he just throws up a floater that's almost guaranteed to go in. If they if he steps to him to tie tie, then he just delivers a no look pocket pass. And then if the weak side or help defender collapses on either the roller or tie tie, he just makes a simple pass to the open corner shooter. So it's just he's always controlled. He's just showing a really impressive sense of composure and just calm decision-making on pretty much every pick-and-roll possession. So we'll talk more about other point guards slash combo guards in this class in comparison to Tai Tai later on. But, you know, one thing I did want to bring up that we've sort of discussed on and off with numerous other guys in this class, you know, I believe it was last week when we were talking about Jaden Ivey or maybe the week before, and you brought up that he really struggles to do anything going to his left. And mm-hmm. he doesn't need to go to his left as much right. because he has such a strong right hand, but that is a weakness for him. And when we were talking about Kennedy Chandler, you know, we were talking about the fact that he doesn't really have an in-between game, floater game, and he doesn't really get to the free throw line as much as he would like. And all of these are things that, you know, they're part of the larger package of the player, but they're sort of these little weaknesses that could turn into bigger issues if they get exploited at the NBA level. With Tai Tai, it's a lot harder to find that thing. He's just so solid in so many different areas that, you know, if you force him away from his mid-range game, he's really good at finishing around the rim. If you force him to give up the ball, he makes really solid reads in the pick and roll. If you give him a bunch of space because you don't want him driving to the rim and collapsing your defense. He's a really solid three point shooter. It's just so much harder, at least in my evaluation of him to see where that sort of glaring weakness is that NBA teams will attack. And, you know, he's not a spectacular athlete and that's probably what it's going to be honestly is that, but it's just not as 
even with Jaden Ivey, who I absolutely love as a prospect, as we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, but with Ivey, you know, that left hand is something that could be a bit of a concern at the next level. And with Tai Tai, you know, yes, he's not the ridiculous athlete that Ivy is, but he's just so solid across the board that it's going to be harder to find that area where you would try and attack him. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of the point that I've gotten to with my eval on him. Um, when we started off here, um, I, I said that I hadn't really bought in. And, I you know, I buy-in is varies um, as to yes. what level, but I... I, I'm more so than before because of a lot of what you just said is that there isn't that glaring weakness where, okay, I can just go under every screen or, okay, I can just, just keep him in the mid range like Kennedy Chandler and he can't do anything. So, you know, to, to really dissect it, you know, we, we have to nitpick a lot and we have to maybe exacerbate some things that aren't major weaknesses. But like you mentioned, the, it's the lack of athleticism, I think, will limit him some as an at-rim at finisher because he's going to be purely a below-the-rim finisher. And then I do worry a little bit about how that affects his space creation because I, I think he's a good ball handler, not a great ball handler. And how he's able to create space against NBA-level defenders who are a little better at navigating screens and chasing him over and recovering, um, how he's able to counter that. I worry about how that affects his ultimate ceiling as that primary point guard or that primary initiator. And, you know, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it just comes more into roster construction at that point where maybe he is best paired with a wing or a big who demands the ball a lot. Like I keep thinking about him on the Celtics where he can be this calming presence who can run a pick and roll, can initiate the offense, but they're not relying on him to go get his own shot and to create constantly create opportunities for, for everyone. So from that standpoint, that's where I worry about his ultimate ceiling as an NBA guy. Yeah, let's actually talk about his ultimate ceiling because I'm very curious about that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a very clear path for him to be like a top 15, like top half of the league point guard. I think it's very unlikely for him to be in that top five, top 10 range. Yeah. I think that there's an outside chance that he could be an all-star, but I think that that's very unlikely. I think really the path for him is that, you know, as we talked about, because he has such a well-balanced floor game, I think that his floor as a prospect is pretty high. You know, I would be surprised if he's not at minimum a valuable role player, but I expect that he'll be like a really good third starter type for like a mid-tier playoff team for a decent length of time. I just don't I don't think he's going to be like an all-star, but I very much believe in him as someone who can shore up a team's point guard rotation. If you're drafting him to be the future of your franchise, I think that's an iffy proposition. But if you expect him to just be slightly above league average point guard, I think that's a very easy future to see for him. No, I, I think that's perfectly put. And I, I would be pretty stunned if he becomes an all-star. Um, I'm not saying it's out of the question, but I think that would be like his absolute best outcome. Um, and I, I think the, the outside shooting is really going to have to improve quite a bit and yeah. I, I i expect it to I, I don't think he's a career 35 percent shooter from outside um I, I think he's better than that but you know he, he's still gonna have to show it um but i i think just situation is gonna be so 
important for him um, as it is for 99% of yes. prospects. <laughs> um, but it, it, I, I think that point that you made where if you are drafting him to be your franchise player, I, I think you're going to be really disappointed because I don't think that's who he is. I, I think he can elevate a ceiling for a team, but not necessarily elevate their floor um, where if he he can make a help make a mid tier playoff team, I think he can help elevate them into the contender status, but I'm not sure he's necessarily elevating the non-playoff team to contender or mid-tier playoff, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. I think with Ty Ty, the deal, as you mentioned, is that he needs a scorer. You know, he he shouldn't be the guy primarily handling that burden. And longer term, if he hits his absolute ceiling... I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be through three-point shooting. It's going to be, you know, him working on his handle and him working on space creation for himself because he gets to the rim well and finishes well at the rim, but he's not a hyper athlete. So if he's really going to be more of a scoring focus, it's going to need to be him finding a way to create for himself as a three-point shooter. And honestly, maybe it could be something as simple as just him getting better as an off-ball mover, off-ball shooter in the sense that, you know, if he's got a primary scoring guy around him and he can get himself open for looks in addition to taking advantage of what the defense gives him on that front, I think that's the way that he turns into more of an offensive force than he is right now. But, you know, again, I think he's got a really high floor just because he's got a really well-balanced and solid skill set. And if he can improve on his scoring for himself, then great. But, you know, if he sort of stays at the level he's at with all of these things, then that alone is, like, pretty close to league average point guard, I think. And if he becomes more than that, it will be because he develops this three-point self-creation. I'm really glad that you brought up the the off ball stuff, because, you know, just thinking about role or just potential fits, you know, I, I personally, I think the Celtics make a lot of sense, but then I was thinking about the Atlanta Hawks and just being the backup point guard there because they have so many guys who kind of need the ball. And when Trey's playing, he's the one rightfully who has the ball all the time. But if you bring Ty Ty in, then some of these other guys can do some self-creation and use him more as an outlet because I he is in the 78th percentile in spot-up scoring. He's uh, in the 82nd percentile shooting off the catch. But all of his off-ball stuff is pretty stagnant. Um, he never runs off screens. He never cuts. I think it's a total of like 11 combined possessions of each, or combined for both of those um, on the season. So so when he doesn't have the ball, it's a lot of standstill. It's a lot of just being an outlet. but he's super effective at doing that and being that outlet. So even just being a a backup point guard, I think is a really good situation for him. If there are those wings and guys on the team who do need the ball in their hands, who do need a a few more self-creation reps, because while, while he can be that kind of calming proper decision maker, he can also be that effective off ball shooter. I mean, think that he definitely would be effective in a backup role. I guess the way I'm looking at it is just that given the dearth of guards in this class, I think it's very likely that he ends up going lottery. And usually when yeah. you're talking about a lottery team, you're not talking about a team that is 
saying, oh, okay, great. We'll draft our backup point guard here with the, I don't know, 11th overall pick. But you're you're right. You're absolutely right. He could be very effective in that role. And that's certainly a lower pressure role than being thrown into a starting job right away. But I think that given his game, he's someone who maybe is less likely than your average rookie to sort of struggle with that kind of pressure. Certainly less than, say, someone who's more of an inefficient shot creator type who maybe won't get those looks to look as good at the NBA level as they did at lower levels. You know, with Ty Ty, there's enough else going on there that I'm less worried about him sort of being thrown into the fire. But if he's not thrown into the fire, I think it's even easier to see him being a very effective piece. Yeah. And I, so I think a lot of that kind of difference comes down to where you end up having him ranked. And right. I, I think, I think you're a little higher on him than I am. I have him at like 13 right now. So I'm like, at nine. Yeah. So I mean, like, if you, if you're taking a point guard in the top 10, if you, if you have a top 10 pick, it's a 90% chance you're taking that guy to be your, a franchise player, a franchise starter. And I, just don't think that that's the case with Ty Ty. Um, like we said earlier, I, I think that you'll be disappointed if that if you, if you take him with that mindset. But if his career ends up being just a really good backup point guard, you know that's a better career than ninety percent of yeah of, of NBA players. So I I currently have him at thirteen, and just looking at Tankathon right now, Atlanta's at 13, Boston's at 14. You know, I, I love either of those landing spots for him. And I think he really helps elevate that entire rotation and kind of piece together some of the their holes. And then as he develops and likely has some early career success, because those teams at least have expectations of being better than they currently are. You know, then I, I think that does a lot for him. We we saw that with Jason Tatum and the early career success that he had, how that helped elevate him. Um, obviously, very different players, not comparing anything like that, but just mm-hmm. as an example of what kind of seeing that early success as a young player can do. So I, I think if he goes into that, a role like that, I think long term, that'll do wonders for him as a player and as and for his development than being thrown into you know, a, a bottom tier team who's expecting him to be their franchise point guard, because I, I just don't think that he, that that's who he is as a player. The Boston fit makes a lot of sense to me. The Atlanta fit, I would like him to go to a less crowded, weird point guard rotation than the Trey Young, Sharif Cooper sort of situation. But I think Boston makes a lot of sense. But really, it definitely seems like we both agree in that it would be better for him to go late lottery to a team that isn't relying on him for everything, rather than a team sort of buying in to the point where they take a swing on him, say, in the top five. But let's use that to transition into what I wanted to talk about before we wrap up, which is just some of the other point guards in this class. And this is a class that is pretty bereft of point guard talent or talent in general, but point guard talent in particular. Now, something that you and I have talked about numerous times on here, and I've already sort of obliquely mentioned today, is I think of Jaden Ivey as a point guard, not because I think of him as someone who's got everything he needs as a primary initiator right now, but rather that 
I think that Jaden Ivey, I mean, I have him at three and I am wavering on whether or not I bump him up to two. I think he has the most, I said wavering, I said, (laughs) don't give me that face, but I think that he has the most superstar upside of any guard in this class. And I don't think it's particularly close. And I think that you're giving me that face again, which no. I know is Johnny Davis face. But... I, mean, I haven't joined this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's sort of where I'm at with Ivy is that I, as you and I have talked about many, many, many times, struggle to put big men as highly in a draft evaluation as guards, just because I think that the ceiling of taking a superstar guard is higher than the ceiling of a superstar big. And yeah, I mean, I think that I having me having Jaden Ivey at the top of the point guard class is kind of a hot take in the sense of is Jaden Ivey a point guard, but I don't think it's a hot take in the sense of given that I consider him a point guard, is there anyone else who'd be at that level? And I have Ty Ty as the second point guard in this class, but I think it's very different evaluations in terms of really ceiling in particular. Wow. Okay. Um, no, so I, 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 I love Jaden Ivey. I think he's going to be a really, really good player. How an NBA team decides to what or what development track they put him on. I am absolutely fascinated by because I I think if they try to use him as a shooting guard, which I I think he's more of a shooting guard or an off guard or combo guard, however you want to classify it. um, I think that's his better role. But if you really believe in that, he does have that point guard upside, then I think you kind of have to just throw him into the fire from day one. And I think the early returns are going to be rough but it's short-term losses for long-term gains. So if if that's what, you know, as the NBA team, if that's what you really believe in, then I think you really have to go in on that. And, you know, we, we saw that kind of approach with Zach Levine, who's kind of a comp that I've used I, or used with Ivy. And Zach Levine was this uber-athletic shooting guard who was given a ton of, of on-ball reps early in his career and the results were brutal and then and then he continued to work on his body continued to work on his game and he became so much more efficient now that doesn't happen with everyone but when it does that's when that athleticism that scoring ability can really elevate an offense and then if that does come along like you like you clearly think it does then i totally agree that that's when he can jump into that superstar level and tier of players because he has that combination of playmaking scoring athleticism that so few people on this earth have i just i i think that you view his playmaking in a little brighter light than i do um Whereas I, I think when he uses it to create in transition or attacking closeouts as a secondary guy, that's when I think it's at its most valuable. Um, but his development route in the NBA is, I, I think, going to be one of the more fascinating uh, storylines from this draft class. So we've mentioned it before. You mentioned it just now with Zach Levine, but... Really, Zach Levine and Devin Booker are sort of the guiding stars for players like Ivy in the sense that you can really see the sort of upside of giving them a lot of these on-ball reps, throwing them into the fire, seeing how they do with it. And 
To be clear, I'm not as high on Ivy as either of the two guys that I'm about to mention, but you can sort of see a similar stretch of rough patches in different ways, but with both Jalen Suggs and Jalen Green this season. Jalen Suggs more, I think, is in the sort of mold of what I would like to see from Ivy, but Suggs was kind of more of a pure point guard than Ivy's yeah. ever been anyway. But, yeah. you know, the idea being that what we've seen with Zach Levine and Devin Booker is that if you have that uber-athletic package with a really solid jump shot and burgeoning ability to create for yourself off the dribble, and you just throw those guys into the fire with a ton of on-ball reps, you know, maybe it doesn't go all that great, and they end up being Michael Carter-Williams, but... I believe so much more in Jaden Ivey's jump shot as I have for a while now than I ever did with Michael Carter Williams. And I don't know. I mean, I think that given what the rest of this class looks like in terms of superstar upside, I think that you really just take Jaden Ivey. If you're a team that needs any guard of any kind, you take Jaden Ivey, you give him the ball a lot and you recognize, as our good friend Tyler Rucker has said, it just takes time, especially with young point guards who are taxed with running the offense for an NBA team. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not worth the gamble. I just think it's a gamble. And I, I think you, oh, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned Jalen Green. I, I think Kevin Porter um, also falls into that kind of conversation of the, just like these uber-athletic guards. And, you know, the the Rockets have been a rough watch for most of the year, and they're just clearly that team that's, you know, we if they had a point guard, I think their entire team would look so much different. If only they had a veteran point guard who was on the bench but not playing. Huh, okay. Um, but I, but that that's where it's really going to come down to how patient is the front office and coaching staff and ownership go, willing to be. Um, because yeah. if, if they're like, all right, we got Jaden Ivey. He's our franchise point guard from day one. Go, let's win games. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, if they're like, this is going to be a process. This is going to be a project. And four years from now, once he's in his second contract, now we're talking about being, you know, a legit playoff contender. Then, okay, then then I can get on board with it. So it, it I think it's really going to come down to what type of front office he gets drafted by, what type of ownership group he gets drafted by, because if they're impatient, if their expectations are for him to be that lead guard right away and produce right away, then I I think the returns are going to be ugly. But if they are patient and kind of work around that and construct the team accordingly and plan for down the line, not just the next two years, but the next five, that then I think it could look a little different. And honestly, also, maybe this is just overly optimistic because the guards in this class are not on the same level as guards mm-hmm. in previous classes, but I don't think anybody expected John Morant to be as ready as he was, as quickly as he was at the NBA level. I don't think anyone expected Trey Young to be... I certainly did not expect Trey Young to be as ready as he was, as quickly as he was at the NBA level, and... I think Ivy is a step below those guys, but I mean, when that's the discussion, I don't think it's out of the question, especially given that people were so concerned about his shooting heading into this year. I don't think it's out of the question that he pleasantly surprises us this coming season. Yeah, and I, my only pushback on that is that I, I think the main difference between Ja and Trey is that they always had the ball in college, where they, they were the show. They were creating everything well, on those teams <laughs> exactly so i mean i i think 
I I think Ivy's outside shot is in a better spot right now than Jaws was uh, by a good amount. Um, but they had all those on-ball reps and initiation and self-creation immediately all the time during college. And that's kind of where I think Ivy would start out with, but then going against NBA schemes and defenders. So I, I think it'll be an uphill climb for him. Um, but it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me because when we do see him attack closeouts or attack the pick and roll and whip those skip passes out of the driver and transition, it, it's really impressive. And, and you can see the vision, you can see the accuracy, how he kind of, how or if he can kind of morph that into more of a half court creation and playmaking, not just from countering his own gravity, that will be really interesting. So before we wrap up today, just wanted to sort of briefly touch on a few of the other point guards in this class. So just quickly wanted to bring up Dyson Daniels, who has been pretty solid in the G League, honestly. So he's 6'6 guard type, you know, someone who has really gotten better as the season has gone on in terms of limiting his turnovers. Turnovers way down in December from where he was in November. And assists are up as well. It's not that he just doesn't have the ball in his hands as much. The jump shot is worrying, but, you know, as a partial free throw truther, as I said time and time again, the fact that he's in the 70s on his free throws is certainly more encouraging than the 60s that we saw with Kennedy Chandler, who Kennedy, we've talked enough, I think, about in the past couple of months to not need to warrant further mention here. But with Daniels, especially given how bereft this point guard class and the fact that he's 18 and has size at 6'6", he's intriguing. I have him sort of in the mid-first round range right now, so not quite lottery, but sort of just outside. But anybody you wanted to bring up for this? No, this point guard class is so frustrating for me. And it like how, how I have that ranked almost... Or typically kind of reflects how I have centers ranked where I I have Mm -hmm. one point guard in the lottery and then everyone else is like fringe first round or fringe second round guys. Um, Dyson Daniels is up next for me too, but I I have him at like 26 because like you said, the the shooting is, he's a guy that I I think I'm just going to have to consume a ton of film on because I'm just struggling to get it. I know a lot of people have him even, you know, mid first to late lottery and I just can't get there. I get the defense. I think he's a good passer, not necessarily a high level playmaker. And if my point guard can't really shoot and is just an okay playmaker, then do I really want a defensive first point guard in the lottery? I, I push back on that a little bit, but I, he, he's just another guy I really have to dive in on. Um, but a guy from Mississippi State, Iverson Molinar, is yes, someone who bring him up. I really think could be the the second best point guard from this class. I he's so much fun. Um, I I really really love his kind of interior and mid range scoring and how he creates and scores out of the pick and roll. I think it's really impressive. He's just a smart passer and kind of similar to Ty Ty. He's just a really good decision maker and he doesn't force things. He doesn't overdo it and he still puts up 20 plus regularly with six and six um his outside shot's a little funky i don't know if it's a strength thing but he kind of has it's like a late release and like a hitch at the top of his 
uh, jump shot where it looks like he's almost trying to like generate more power. So I, I don't know if that's just a strength thing, but I think given his mid-range shooting, I think maybe, hopefully, uh, that can kind of get refined and um, smoothed out from outside. But he, he's his scoring, his decision-making, and then I think he's a pretty good on-ball defender as well. So I, I think all of that um, makes it, 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 it wouldn't surprise me if I end up bumping him up into the first round. Yeah, I definitely have him as someone who I'm thinking about as a potential first-round guy, too. The shot doesn't look all that great, but I think he's also a contender for what I might just decide I'm calling now the Jaden Ivey Memorial Shooting Award, where he's at 28.8% from three on the season. I do not think he's that level of shooter, especially since no. last year he shot 44% on a pretty similar number of attempts. And, you know, again, not to get back to the whole free throw truther thing, but he's shooting 87% from the free throw line this season. So... I think it's probably more likely that he's closer to a 35% three-point guy and an 80% free-throw guy than an 87% free-throw guy, but a 29% three-point shooter. So I don't think that's an asset, to be clear, but I also don't think it's anywhere near as much of a weakness as it looks like it is this season if you just sort of look at the raw numbers for it. Yeah, and I... And I kind of mentioned it earlier, but it's weird how the jumper just... The mechanics look a lot smoother from 17 feet than from... 24 feet um i'm hoping it's just a strength thing um otherwise it's just a weird oddity in his shooting but i he's in the 91st percentile on runners and 92nd percentile around the basket he's got really good body control and the way he he's able to euro around rim protectors or you know extend and lunge and split double teams and then finish with a scoop layup it's just really impressive and i you know he's just one of these guys where i think the more you watch of him, it's impossible not to get more and more impressed. All right. Anything else you want to talk about today before we wrap things up? No, I just, I'm bummed that this is a kind of a disappointing point guard class. I they, I think there's some talent. I, someone will emerge. They always do. Uh, sh- shout out Taryn Armstrong. Please <laughs> declare for the draft. You're the best playmaker in the country. But yeah, I I, I think that's it. Ty Ty Washington's good. I've I've been convinced, I, and I know that's a really hot take. Uh, go, I'm glad we finally got you, Tyler. It's you know, I I I, I fought it, but I, I bought in on the the Kentucky point guard. Yes, you reluctantly have decided <laughs> that the dude that you just wrote a whole bunch of words about might actually be good at this whole basketball thing. Who would have thought a five star at Kentucky would be good? But um, yeah, if if you haven't read the article, go over to No Ceilings, read it. Go read Nick's EJ Liddell piece; it was really good. Um, he's a really good basketball player. Uh, go read everything over at No Ceilings; it's free. That it is. All right, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at t m e t c a l f one one. And as he mentioned, you can find his work on No Ceilings. Definitely check out that tie tie piece and be on the lookout for Tyler's usual Friday screener piece coming out this Friday, as things that come out on Friday tend to do. <laughs> he also writes on Candice Hoopus and, of course, for hashtag basketball. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can find my work on No Ceilings as well. Thank you, Tyler, for the EJ Liddell plug. You can also find my work on hashtag basketball as well as over at Nets Republic. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com or via Twitter. And as always, thanks so much for listening.